This is FutureSight, a show from Capgemini Invent, where we explore emerging technology trends and new ways for you to adapt and grow your future business. I'm Carrie Bemayo, Chief Technology and Innovation Officer of Capgemini Invent and the co-host of FutureSight. In this week's episode, I'm speaking to Haseeb Qureshi, Managing Partner at Dragonfire Capital, about the current state of decentralized finance, or DeFi, and the blockchain industry. Recent developments in the DeFi space have caused many to question where DeFi is headed and what this means for the future of blockchain and Web3. Haseeb and Dragonfly are industry leaders in the Web3 capital investment space, and Haseeb recently published a fantastic in-depth article explaining the recent Luna collapse and what it means for DeFi in general. So with that introduction, Haseeb, very welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I'm so happy that you've been able to make it. And you got to help us, man. You got to help us right now in helping I don't know us how much figure I can out. Help, but yeah, I'm happy to. <laughs> I'm happy to walk you through what's going on right now. No, no, no. That's really what we want. We want. We want to have like your no holds barred insight about what's going on over here. And in order to do that, I thought maybe we can start with just a bit of an introduction because you've had a pretty atypical career all the way from, you know, being a no-limit heads-up Texas Hold'em player, you're one of the top 10, you published a book about it, and then went on to work at Airbnb, and then jumped onto the crypto bandwagon on, in 2017. So how's all this actually happened, and how's it led to what you're doing in Dragonfly today? No, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a good question how all this happened. So, um, yeah, I come from a somewhat weird background. used to be a professional poker player. Uh, I actually never studied anything technical. I studied English and philosophy at the University of Texas. Ended up becoming a software engineer, worked at Airbnb, uh, moved out to Silicon Valley. And uh, I ended up catching the crypto bug in 2017. Uh, at that time, crypto was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd known about Bitcoin for a very long time, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't really get it until, actually, it was, it was when Trump first got elected that uh, I first bought a bunch of Bitcoin. Because I had, I, I didn't, I wasn't as financially literate then as I am today, um, and so I didn't really know how to bet on the world exploding, other than by buying Bitcoin. That was the, that was the best thing I could think of, um, and it was that that kind of gradually brought me down the rabbit hole. But it was really Ethereum and the growth of Ethereum and the idea of decentralized, decentralized trustless computation that really brought me over the line and, and convinced me that crypto was going to change the world. And so I, I left Airbnb and started working on crypto full time. Um, I worked for a little while at a company called 21, which got acquired by Coinbase. Then I started my own startup, working on a stablecoin. Uh, and then eventually I found my way into the investing side. Uh, previously, I was at a fund called Metastable Capital. Now I'm at Dragonfly, one of the two managing partners of the firm. We manage you know, a couple billion in assets, and uh, we're one of the leading crypto funds in the space. So I mostly spend my time uh, looking at early stage investments in crypto, finding entrepreneurs who are working on big problems. and helping to support them and, and uh, providing them with capital and other resources to help them succeed. Okay, yeah, and congrats on your third fund. You guys just raised a 650 million fund, right, pretty recently. Yeah, fortuitous timing because, uh, you know, we, I, unclear whether we could have raised that fund right now in this environment, uh, but we were, we were very fortunate and I think our, our track record of investing into a lot of great founders and, and companies over the last uh, three years has um, has earned us a spot as one of the premier funds in the industry. We're going to come back to the fund later on and also kind of try to find out more about how your experience as a poker player, if that has any impact in the way that you look at you know companies that come up to you today. But I want to get into the meat of the subject. So the past month, you know, ever since May 7th, it's just been a whirlwind. I mean, we all knew that crypto summer was kind of getting over, that we are entering like a, a bear market. There was a bit of a crypto winter vibe going on. But in the last month, I think that's really kind of become something front and center. It's really cemented. And there's three things which have really kind of changed the opinion and the market sentiment right now. The first was what happened with Terra and USD. And I liked your article about that because you were able to kind of showcase that there were different elements that were actually at play over there. There was Anchorage, and then there was a connection to what was happening with Adricadabra and all of that going on. And then the second event which happened was, you know, stake ETH getting knocked off its peg with ETH. Um, and there's different reasons for it. 
And then most recently, this happened like a couple of days back with Celsius kind of shutting down its um, lending platform and really just not allowing anyone to withdraw their funds. So I really want to get your insight on what's actually happening. We can take them, you know, one event at a time. What's actually the sequence of events which led to this? And more importantly, how they all interconnected? So the first thing to, if you want to take the thousand foot view, the thousand foot view is macro. It's all macro. I mean, we, we've all been talking about how everything is one big macro trade now. And crypto is, is definitely emblematic of that. So we've seen the correlation between crypto and the NASDAQ spike to all-time highs since basically December. And now, why, why is that happening? Why is there so much correlation between the NASDAQ and crypto? So the NASDAQ has been getting crushed, right? And, and the S&P 500 broadly, but the NASDAQ being more tech-focused is, is taking the brunt of it. Um, but risk assets across the board are getting trounced. And of course, crypto is the riskiest of the risk assets. But you might ask, why is there so much correlation between tech stocks and crypto? Is it just that they're risky? I don't think the answer, uh, the, the answer is a little bit more nuanced, which is that um, you know, most of what's going on in macro is fear of rising interest rates. And rising interest rates, uh, naturally, it affects assets that pay out farther in the future. Because interest rate is basically the discount rate on capital that you're going to receive. So if the interest rate is high, then you'd much rather take a dollar today than a dollar tomorrow or a dollar five years from now. Now, almost everything in crypto, like there are things in crypto that exist today, but the things in crypto that exist today are like, they're, they're fine, but they're kind of, you know, they're still relatively small. Um, crypto is mostly a story about the future. And to the extent that you are a story about the future, about how things are going to change in five or 10 years, then the discount rate, the interest rate, massively affects the value of assets that are going to be realized within five to 10 years or potentially even longer than that. Uh, and that's why you see you know, the same thing that is happening to you know, something like Facebook or uh, you know, a bunch of other tech stocks that people, you know, corporate earnings are actually fine. Corporate earnings were strong. Um, people by and large think that, look, the, these companies are still going to grow. Uh, the growth rates haven't been impaired. The, the consumer spending hasn't been impaired, at least not yet. It's mostly a function of, hey, the value of something that is, that is, is useful today has changed relative to something that's useful in 10 years. That's what it means to have rock bottom interest rates. And we're clearly exiting that regime, which massively changes the kind of assets that you want to hold in a portfolio. So that's affecting crypto, and it should. It is correct that that affects crypto. Um, and it especially affects things that are further down the risk curve. Now, what's further down that risk curve? Things like DeFi, you know, things like metaverse plays, you know, anything that's, anything that's riskier than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is already Bitcoin. A bunch of people own it, right? The whole the, the the use case of Bitcoin is people owning it. Well, a bunch of people own Bitcoin, so it is the, it is drawn down the least relative to other things in that in the overall portfolio of crypto. The riskier the thing is, the more it's gotten hurt in uh, in this downturn. So, so that's the first thing. Now, zooming in into particulars, the first thing that happened that kind of uh, set off this this uh, rather than winter, let's call it a blizzard, right? It's sort of Putting the, putting the winter presumably into place, but it's been too fast to call it a winter yet. Right now, there's... Um, so Terra, you know, I, I don't want to belabor it because it's been talked over so many times. And at this point, it's, it, it also feels not that proximate a cause of what's going on right now. But basically what happened was that Terra was a decentralized stablecoin that um, was essentially implicitly levered. So there was some leverage in, in that system. And that leverage meant that it was going to be difficult for Terra to survive a market downturn of some size. And then there was, as there has been pretty continuously over this year, um, some market instability to the downside. And that caused Terra to basically face a giant margin call. And uh, what the, the collateral that was backing this stablecoin uh, ended up having a run in the bank and Terra unwound. And for the first time ever, we saw a $40 billion uh, network, which was uh, Luna, go to basically zero. And uh, we've, we've never seen that before. Uh, and the reason why that happened was that Luna has a inflationary element that Luna is designed to back the, over, the, the total supply of UST, which is the stablecoin. So there was something like $14 billion of liabilities for the stablecoin and supposedly $40 billion of assets, uh, most of which was Luna. And there was some Bitcoin as well. There's about a few billion of Bitcoin. But when the run of the bank started, uh, out of fear of whether or not the, all these redemptions are going to be able to be met, the value of the Luna contracted and contracted and contracted. Um, and Luna kept printing, uh, the protocol, Terra, kept printing more Luna 
to try to meet all the redemptions, which resulted in a hyperinflationary cycle. And Luna basically went to a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a penny. And that spelled the death of, of Luna in a pretty spectacular event that ended up causing a lot of folks to lose money. So um, that was catastrophic. And it's, it's triggered a lot of hand-wringing, one, about DeFi, two, about regulation, and three, about stable coins. So all, all three of those, I think, are going to be big stories over the upcoming months uh, of how these things get dealt with. Now, that was the, the first domino. Now, you mentioned the uh, staked ETH uh, debacle. So what, what happened there? Um, this is a little bit inside baseball, um, and, and the story is not over yet, but here's basically the high-level idea. So um, when, when Ethereum transitions to Ethereum 2.0, you are going to be able to stake your Ether and earn a yield. Um, and actually, you already can today. It's in, uh, but right now, if you, if you want to stake your ETH, you have to lock it up in the beacon chain, which is basically a one-way street. So you take it to the beacon chain, you stake it there. It's kind of like, a little bit like how people think now about China. That China is kind of a one-way street. You can get your money into China, but you can't get it out. And if you're in that kind of environment, then you know even if look there's attractive growth in China, I can't really get access to it. It's just not investable necessarily if I don't have an exit plan. So that's kind of the way that staked ETH works today: is that you can move your ether into the beacon chain, but you don't really have an exit plan until Ethereum makes the full transition to ETH 2.0, and then even after that, what's called the merge. Um, they need to do another uh, upgrade in about six to 12 months after that that's going to enable withdrawals. So it's a long time coming until you can actually get your ETH out of the, the, ETH, uh, the beacon chain. So in order to mitigate some of that illiquidity, there has been invented this concept of staking derivatives. And a staking derivative is basically, you can just think of it as essentially turning your locked up Ether into like a T-bill. So you know a T-bill, you, know, you, you basically are... Um, you're, you're getting yield in exchange for locking up capital for some period of time, right? In the same way with uh, ETH, you can basically tokenize or securitize, quote unquote, uh, it's not actually security, but you're quote unquote, securitize your uh, interest in staked Ether that's in a big pool and then make it tradable, make it liquid, right? And if you think about it, well, like, well that should pretty much uh, trade pretty close to par. Now, it doesn't trade exactly at par. Because, of course, it is a, there's a, there's a one-way uh, price band, right? meaning that there's a price band on one side. Clearly, staked Ether cannot trade for more than you know, one, one staked ETH cannot trade for more than one ETH. Because if it did, it's very easy to arbitrage it by just you know, putting more ETH in and then selling it right? and once, you, once you turn into staked ETH. So there's, a, there's an arbitrage on the, on the high end, on the upside. Um, but there's not an arbitrage on the bottom side. right? If staked ETH goes below one ETH, there's no way to take staked ETH out and redeem it for an Ether and then sell, you know, and, and equilibrate the price on that side. So if the demand for staked ETH goes down, then potentially this thing will just trade below the peg. Okay, so this is how it works. It's pretty, if you think about it for about 10 minutes, it all makes sense, right? It's, it's pretty straightforward how it works. Um, however, there were a bunch of groups that um, I, I think maybe did not realize that this is how it works because of the fact that there's always been high demand, uh, at least in the times of the bull market, for staked ETH, because otherwise ETH doesn't have a very attractive yield relative to what you can get it by staking it. And so you had not only people you know, locking up a bunch of ETH and staking it and putting it in staking derivatives to get liquidity, but also they were levering up on this staked ETH. So basically they would take uh, Ether, put it into Lido, which is the dominant uh, staking derivative protocol, uh, and get the staked ETH, which is generating yield. Then they would put that as collateral and borrow more Ether against it. So you could borrow this in Aave or Compound, right? Borrow more Ether against, I think it was actually just an Aave. Uh, borrow more Ether against the staked ETH and then restake that ETH and do this again and again until you're basically levering up many times over, getting very high yield, but of course taking some risk that um, you, know, you could get margin called if the value of the staked ETH goes down too much and you're paying some borrowing costs, but you're getting higher yield to, to, to pay for the borrowing cost. So a lot of people were doing this. And in fact, it turns out this is one of the things that many of the lending platforms uh, that try to offer high yield to consumers, we're doing this kind of thing. One of them, as a sneak preview of what's happening next, turned out to be Celsius, which is one of the largest lending platforms that exists in crypto today. So what's largely happened? So one thing that's happened is that a lot of people, crypto markets have come down a lot, right? And, and again, the, the, the macro shocks are exogenous, right? Most of the reason why crypto went down is because of macro. 
just that risk assets across the board are going down. Interest rates are expected to go up higher because of this really bad CPI print we saw on Friday. Uh, and that is causing instability in growth assets across the board. So crypto markets went down. When crypto markets go down, people get margin call. People need to go raise cash to pay their liabilities. And some of those people who got margin called owned stake teeth. They had to get their stake teeth out. So people started selling stake teeth. Now, in an environment like this, especially when volatility spikes, there's a huge premium on liquidity. And suddenly you start realizing staked ETH is not ETH. Staked ETH kind of looks like ETH, kind of quacks like ETH. In a bull market over the last six months, staked ETH and ETH have been like this. They've been just rock solid pegged. But there's no peg on the bottom side. If, if staked ETH goes below ETH, there is nothing. There's no mechanism in any way that, that ties it back to Ether, right? The thing that you would need to do in order to regain the peg on the, on the downside is to have somebody who's willing to take potentially multiple years of illiquidity in exchange for the premium, right? You basically have to say, like, look, I, I'm in exchange for getting two years worth of, let's say it's going to be two years until you can get the stake teeth out. Then in exchange for uh, basically the yield and the discount, I'm willing to put my ether in a box for two years and not look at it. Well, in, in, in a catastrophic market environment or a place where, you know, liquidity is king, it's very hard to find people who are willing to do that. Uh, but that is the situation right now. So basically what's happened is that due to these margin calls, stake teeth has massively drawn below the peg. And that has caused Celsius, uh, which is one of the big, biggest lenders, to that is one of the causes, not the only cause, but that is one of the causes uh, that has triggered Celsius to no longer be able to meet redemptions. So Celsius, for their customer deposits, has paused all trading, all redemptions, all withdrawals, um, because of the fact that they just have no ability to be able to move assets without causing essentially a run of the bank and further basically causing a liquidity crisis within DeFi. Um, and so this has been a pretty massive dislocation. It's been exacerbated by groups like Celsius being unable to move. Now, uh, we just saw this morning that Nexo, which is another big consumer-facing yield uh, platform, but very similar to, uh, to Celsius, they've offered to buy Celsius and basically to meet all their customer liabilities. Um, now, of course, almost certainly this is a fire sale offer, and they're going to try to leverage kind of you know public uh, uh, opprobrium and and anger to try to force Celsius to sell at rock bottom. I'm sure what will be a rock bottom price uh, in order to to to, to get uh, some liquidity flowing in the market for for yeah, and at the same time they're also buying an interest bearing asset because that's, that's what right. Stakey is actually doing. So it's like a double whammy. You know, you get two for the price of one. That's right. That's right. So if you have a strong balance sheet, it's a, it's a great move by Nexo. Um, I'd be surprised if this deal happens just because of the fact that there right now is no regulator who can force uh, Celsius to go in and take this deal in order to meet customer redemptions. I think in a more orderly and more regulated market, probably this would just be forced to happen. But crypto being crypto, Celsius, as far as I know, is not. Is, <laughs> I don't really know the regulatory status of, of Celsius, but on that vein as well, like one of the things that you realize with crypto is this inherent belief that all the other actors who are with you, your DeFi brotherhood, they're going to actually make the right kind of moves in order to maintain that algorithmic stablecoins continue working the way that they do. That even if you have highly leveraged assets out there, which are literally like interest upon interest upon interest, like it's like trying to measure the length of a piece of string that there's some kind of like gentlemanliness that's going to happen. But this actually brings me to what I've been trying to understand and wrap my head around, because on one side, there's like multiple spillover effects and knock-on effects. And on the other side, there's actually just the actors. So you mentioned dominoes. I think that's a great word for it. Because when you look at, let's take the first domino, right? So we had what was going on with the peg that was happening between Luna and UST. And okay, fine, that, 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 that had its own kind of story. But at the same time, you also had Anchor behind it. And Anchor was, you know, the protocol, it's offering the stable interest rate of 20% per year on USD. And the way that this was actually working was they were actually taking a lot of the deposits which are coming in from staked Luna uh, on Terra, sorry, or if you had staked Atom from Cosmos or staked Solana, you know, from Sol Solana or staked Avax from Avalanche and including staked Ether, by the way, from Ethereum. You are ensuring that if you get this kind of liquidity from one bunch of actors, that the staking rewards that you get from these proof-of-stake cryptocurrencies was enough to cover the 20% that you were actually going to pay out at the end of it to the, to the other people who just had their USD and they deposited their USD or they were kind of trading that for, for Luna or whatever it was. 
So when, when you start looking at this, you kind of see this network connection that's happening. Because if you're using these extremely leveraged financial assets, then essentially, if there's a small change, I'm talking like a couple of percentage points, not even, that has these multiple spillover effects because everything is over 100% leverage behind it. And on top of this, everyone was knew about this, including Terra, by the way. Terra knew about this. They had spoken about it. They had their Luna foundational um, guard that was outplaced. They had spoken publicly about this. But nevertheless, in spite of all of this happening and the May 7th incident that happened, what do we find? That Alameda Research goes ahead and just makes like a 1.5 billion sale of, of staked ETH. And that definitely had a knock-on effect on moving the peg between staked ETH and ETH. So I, I, I'm, I'm trying to understand now if everyone's aware of these network effects and there's this uh, ad hoc unwritten kind of rule about we are all here to help each other. It's DeFi. It's all about distribution and democratization and decentralization. What, what's happening? How people kind of like, is everyone out there for their own personal benefit of gain or um, or I mean, we just made? I understand the, the thrust of that story, but I, I, I don't, I would take issue with it. A financial system cannot work if the idea is that we are expecting everybody to look out for the commons, right? Obviously, that is immediately going to fail if that is your trust model, if that's, if that's your mechanism design. Um, you need to create a system that is robust to individual actors looking out for their own self-interest. Right now, Staked ETH has never, has never, actually claimed that we are staked one on one with ETH. Right? They're 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 rational enough and they're you know sort of by the book enough to to, to have been very clear about that. There there is no mechanism. We didn't create one. Look, it's very easy. You can again, you can explain the whole thing in about two minutes. If there is a liquidity crisis and people are freaked out about uh, you know the, the the ability to actually sell their assets, then Staked ETH will go below the peg. There is no mechanism that brings it back above that is risk-free, uh, I should say. I think the, you know, the, 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 it's, it's a question really of when you design these protocols, right? when you design MakerDAO, when you design Compound, when you design uh, Aave, when you design Lido, do you build this such that in an environment like the one that we're in right now, that these things are robust and continue to survive? There are some protocols that right now are buckling under the weight of this downturn, right? I mean, obviously, Luna could not handle volatility to the downside. It was not designed to. It was effectively, it was a, it was a levered protocol that really depended on things moving up and to the right, basically continually. And it was destined to fail for that reason. But there are a lot of things in crypto that have actually survived other downturns. There are things in crypto that survived March 2020 when the entire world woke up to COVID and you know, markets collapsed 50% in a single day. I remember that. I was there when the first generation of DeFi weathered the storm of what it looked like to have liquidity dry up and markets completely collapse overnight. And you know, what we're seeing today and, and over the weekend is bad. Um, you know, it's, it's potentially comparable to what happened that weekend. But a lot of stuff was engineered to be able to survive that again, because it's happened before. And a lot of stuff, which is newer, and this is very common in, uh, in, in, in a, uh, you know, after a bull market, after a bull cycle, part of the, 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 the standard theory of business cycles is that in a business cycle, businesses become more and more leveraged over time. And basically, you, you, you have business models that are encouraged to take on more and more risk and have thinner and thinner margins, right? And, and, and basically, um, not be able to withstand volatility or, or downsides because it, it, you, you just sort of have an environment of abundance. And so there's not as strong of a selection function or a fitness function that forces people to be lean and very, very careful with their resources. But what, what bear markets do is they clean all that stuff out. You know, it's like, it's like you know, every winter, the, the, the least robust uh, animals die out. And that creates room for the strongest animals to survive to the next spring. The culling of the herd. Exactly. The culling of the herd. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now in DeFi, is that there are a lot of things that were created that don't actually have the robustness to be able to survive a moment like this, and they will go away. They will have to be reformulated in such a way that they can survive a moment like this one. And everything that you see in Gen 1, by the way, of DeFi, everything that was around in 2020, it's still standing. because it's been through this. They were all built with this kind of resiliency in mind. 
No, I, I remember that 2017 was a was a watershed moment for me as well personally because I was you know getting more and more involved in the crypto game and I actually got involved in a couple of ICOs and after the initial kind of ecstasy of being involved in an ICO project kind of you know went away, I realized that 90% of what was actually being sold out there was total BS. Like this wasn't gonna, the, the tech wasn't ready yet. There was no way to make something like this. And I took a step back and when the inevitable happened that like 89% of these things just went away and you never heard about them. And then you had a much better ecosystem that came up, right? So you had your exchanges, you had your, your DeFi protocols, which are still, by the way, limited to lending and borrowing. They're not really doing a lot of other things. People are trying to tokenize different kinds of assets, but you know that will take the time that it needs to go. What you essentially found was very simplistic primitives being built and of course, there's higher levels of complication. You have the, you know, the Alt L1s and now you've got the L2s and everything else. There's definitely a much more horizontal kind of development process that's being put into place. But this is also leading me to the question that if we are kind of thinking about the culling of the herd, well, what is the next space of DeFi ecosystem going to look like? Where do you think that this is actually going to take DeFi? Is it going to be just being able to make more robust existing um, products and services? Or are we actually going to find a bigger plethora of, of variety in DeFi moving forward? It's a great question. Um, so there are there a, few, a few things that, that come to mind for me right now. So the first thing is that if you look at DeFi over the last cycle, who have been the primary users of DeFi up till now? The answer is mostly wealthy people in the first world. Which is, which is kind of weird, right? If you, if you actually look at it clearly enough, th this is not really the story that we've been telling about DeFi. The story that we've been telling about DeFi is that DeFi is a way for people who don't otherwise have access to financial platforms and financial services to be able to get access to them just using a mobile phone from anywhere in the world, right? That's the idea of DeFi. When you say it that way, it's, it's a compelling idea. It's clearly a very powerful primitive. Um, but right now, it is in the hands of people who are primarily using it to speculate as opposed to people who are using it to actually solve their financial needs. That's the first thing that is going to change about DeFi. It's going to take some time for it to get there, but it will get there because of the fact that, look, if you are, a, you know, uh, if you are in you know, Pakistan or in Malawi or in Venezuela or in you know, Turkey for that matter, this stuff solves problems that you have. Now, the, the, the last mile isn't really there. The UX isn't really there. The scalability isn't really there. Um, there. There are problems that need to get solved. And there are people hard at work on solving those problems and making it so that this stuff actually can operate at a world scale. But the, the core question of whether DeFi is going to be valuable to people, to me, I think the answer is obvious. But right now, it's not in the hands of those people yet. It's going to take some time for that to happen. Now, there are also a lot of applications in DeFi that are still gated behind primitives we don't have yet. So just to give you one obvious example, we have no credit in DeFi. DeFi, if you want to go take out a loan, the only kind of loan you can take in DeFi is a fully collateralized loan, right? So it's fully secured. Basically, this means that I don't have to trust you. I don't have to know anything about you. It doesn't matter how many times you borrowed from me. It doesn't matter how much I know you. It doesn't matter how good of a guy you are. Uh, I will not give you any different rate than anybody else. That is not how finance works, right? It is not how borrowing and lending works. Um, there's, it's a very, very narrow subset of finance that is completely invariant to who you are and your track record and your history that gives everybody the exact same rate based on their collateral level. But in order to get that, you need identity. We don't have identity right now on chain. But once somebody manages to solve the identity problem, that is going to open up a universe of applications that currently are gated behind the lack of any identity primitive on chain. So I think there are a lot of directions that DeFi is going to move in. And, and when you think about you know, what is it going to look like when DeFi is actually used in emerging markets and in different places around the world, I mean, one thing that's obvious to me, you know, back in 2017, 2018, when uh, in the last bear market, I remember I, at that time, um, you know, one of our, one of our uh, juniors was really despondent. You know, crypto, crypto dropped, Bitcoin was at like, you know, 4,000, 5,000, you know, it was, it was a very depressing time. And uh, he was asking me like, well, what is this stuff even for if all this stuff is drying, drying down? I don't know if I even believe the story anymore. 
And I told him, like, look, there's one thing, there's at least one thing that I, I know that I'm not fooling myself about, that crypto has absolute product market fit for, and that's stable coins. Stable coins at that time were still pretty small, right? There's like less than 20 billion of stable coins that were outstanding at that time. Um, but the idea that anywhere in the world with just a mobile phone, anybody can get access to dollars in unlimited quantities, that is absolutely going to take over the world, right? Like the one thing you don't have to convince yourself is that people want dollars. So it's not even about crypto at that point. It's just about the, the core thing that you're giving people access to. Stable coins will grow. Absolutely, they will grow. It's just a matter of time. And in fact, of course, that's exactly what happened. Now, the one thing that I feel is absolutely true that I don't need to convince, I don't need anybody to convince me of, that I just know is true, is that when synthetic assets take off in DeFi, and synthetic assets means basically assets that are basically you can think of derivatives that track the underlying value of sort of real world things that we care about, right? So you can imagine, you know, stocks, assets, indexes like the S&P 500, uh, oil futures, et cetera, et cetera. When all of this stuff is on chain and you will be able to buy uh, synthetic Tesla, synthetic Apple stocks, synthetic gold, synthetic you know, wheat futures, et cetera, et cetera. That is going to have product market fit around the world. That the idea that anybody from anywhere in the world can buy anything that you or I can buy, that is going to be huge someday. Now, it's not huge today because the people who would be buying it are not on the blockchain. But eventually they will. In the same way that in the early days of the internet, you might have looked at email, you might have looked at you know, Usenet groups and said, okay, someday everybody is going to use this stuff. But today it's used in universities and by you know, a bunch of nerds. And you know, looking around at universities and nerds and you know, researchers, it might be very hard to imagine that, yes, someday everybody is going to use this. But that was exactly right about the internet. But if I pull on this, this, this vein of uh, jaded idealism, it reminds me of the episode that you actually did pretty recently on the chopping block. Shout out to Laura Shin and the Unchained podcast. It's really good. Please listen to that. <laughs> but I, I, was on, I was listening to you and Tarun, and you guys were, you had brought in Andre uh, Kronje. And one of the takeaways that I got from it, and it also led to a little bit of debate. I, wasn't, I was on the bench of like, do you actually support him or not? But he mentioned the topic of regulated DeFi. You know, it's like an antithesis if you talk to pure DeFi people. So from what I'm listening to what you're saying, especially with what you mentioned with regards to identity and just being allowing a lot of people to connect to it, are you with him on this? And if you are, what does regulated DeFi actually look like? So I, I personally, I am a bear on regulated DeFi. I, I don't think regulated DeFi is going to be the future of this stuff. I think that crypto is intrinsically a subversive technology. And what I mean by that is that crypto changes the balance of power between individuals and governments. And whenever that happens, it's, all, it's always subversive when that happens. It's always challenging when that happens. And it, also, it always redraws the rules about how individuals relate to their governments. The internet did that. It did that with respect to media. Right? Suddenly, the idea that the FCC controls what the public can see and what goes on the public airwaves, that fell apart with the internet. It no longer became feasible to have a single government actor be responsible for the messages that the public was allowed to receive. And to the extent that you could exert some government pressure on the press, well, we had you know, what we now call the fourth estate, right? which was created by the internet, uh, or the fifth estate, or depending, you know, I don't know, depending on how you call it. Um, and Crypto does the same thing. Crypto changes the assumptions that we have historically made about the ability for financial services to be fully intermediated and those intermediaries to be controlled by the state. Once these things become disintermediated in the same way that messages and communication, especially mass communication, has been disintermediated, and now you don't have to go through the government in order to get access to the airwaves, you go through, you go through the, the you know, IP and TCP IP in order to communicate with people, um, everything changes. The balance of power changes. That's what crypto does. That's why it's so exciting. That's why it's so compelling. It, it's certainly true that governments are going to try to regulate DeFi and they're going to succeed in, in, in various places. But there's always going to be an aspect of DeFi and of stablecoins and of all these things. Like, look, if you have a mobile phone, you can buy stablecoins. If you have a mobile phone, you can buy the synthetic Tesla stock. And what are they going to do? Are they going to tell you that it's illegal for you to buy synthetic Tesla stock with your mobile phone? 
really? That's what they're going to do? They're going to tell you that you can't buy, you know, synthetic RMB. You can't buy, you know, synthetic coal. That you have to buy it through the government-approved mechanism. How are they going to stop you? What are you know? There, there are rules against gambling all over the world, but there is no country and no government in the world that can stop you and I from making a bet with each other, right? If you and I want to say they're like, hey, you know, I think that the Lakers are going to win or the Lakers are going to lose, no government in the world seriously tries to stop us from doing that. Now you can regulate casinos, and every country in the world does regulate casinos, but you can't stop people for making a bet if they want to. And I think the same thing will be largely true of DeFi. Is that, look, you can't start a DeFi protocol on American soil, right? Eventually that, is a totally unregulated one, right? You, you will, there will be laws and, and rules against that. But the idea that you as an American cannot buy something on DeFi, that the government is allowed to say, no, you're not allowed to buy this because we don't want you to. That I think is going to be very, very challenging to implement in reality. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, if, if, and uh, that's where I like looking at Web 2 and Web 3, and I'm kind of starting to switch the conversation now a little bit towards more towards Web 3, because, I mean, you know, there's that Andreessen quote in which he says, the original sin of the internet was building the browser without a wallet plugged into it. And that's what got me really interested in looking at Web 3. Every time I've actually been focusing on, on crypto and DeFi, and it's been eight years now that I've been, you know, looking at the space, it was never the fact that there was a token that was going up and down in price. Like I never looked at, at Bitcoin or anything as an investment vehicle till I realized that, well, unfortunately, no one thinks the way I do. They're thinking about it as digital gold. And I, w- I was on board with that. But the main thing that I always found was we're creating a new tech stack. And that's what I've always been interested in, right? So if you've got TCP IP and your entire communication stack built on top of it, which includes your middleware, your backend, your front end and apps and everything else, that's just literally changed the world. And we've seen this. This has happened in our lifetimes. I still remember, you know, modems coming to home and everything else. And now what we're seeing is, well, we're moving from TCP IP and communication protocols to value exchange protocols or blockchains. And you're seeing a repetition of the same kind of evolutionary process. You had your settlement layer, then you had your layer 1.2s, then you had your layer 2 solutions. And now you've got, you know, firms like, um, what's it called, Alchemy. And they have the block the development environment for it. And we're seeing a lot of new kinds of solutions, whether it's stuff like ARV, in which you can do decentralized storage. You've got Akash Network for decentralized computation. So we're seeing like a new kind of stack coming up. Now, my question to you is, based on what you're seeing in terms of the sculling of the herd and the ups and downs of crypto, how is that actually affecting your view on Web3 and how is that actually impacting the way that you guys at Dragonfly, uh, what are you investing in? What are you looking at? You don't have to give company names, of course, but you can just give us like, you know, core elements of what you're looking for today. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I, I'm, I'm, so I have somewhat mixed feelings about the kind of broader Web3 story as you've described it. Um, the idea that we're going to migrate to an entirely decentralized stack with respect to computing. Um, I think that there are elements of the computing stack that are going to change, but primarily almost everything that has worked in crypto, almost everything that has been important in crypto has been financial in nature, right? I mean, Bitcoin, uh, the blockchain was originally created to solve the double spend problem, to solve it, to create decentralized money. And um, almost always every major application that's been successful in crypto and has actually really achieved adoption has some financial component to it. So I'm, I'm personally skeptical of the broader story that we are going to decentralize everything and that every future architecture is going to be a decentralized blockchain, blah, 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 blah. Um, but I do think there are bits and pieces of these things that are going to work at scale. Now, you, know, you asked the question of what are we investing in? And you know, right now, I mean, like everyone, we're trying to get our bearings and kind of figure out where, where this market is going and, and uh, what it's going to take for the market to get its legs. We're deploying actively, and in, in, in a way, it's an attractive time to be investing. But on the other side, it is a tricky time, given how much everything has gotten hit and, and how aggressively the market's drawn down. Um, it, it's hard to it's hard to do deals in an environment like this, where as investors, your uh, expectation is that okay, well, everything is down a lot, so prices should be a lot lower. And as an entrepreneur, you're like, well, but my friend just raised you know three months ago, and he got you know two or three times the price that, that you're, you, know, you guys are quoting me today. Um, 
But of course, unfortunately, that's a lot of times what happens when you see a market downturn is that it takes a few months for the market to equilibrate and to find a new price level that everybody feels uh, good about. So a lot of times deals just stop getting done around this time. But by and large, we're very long-term investors. And so we, what, what I care about are the people who are solving the big problems in crypto. So what are the big problems in crypto? Uh, most of the time when, when uh, something is created that's really valuable, it's because it's solving one of these big problems. So the first one is, of course, scalability. This is what a lot of the last cycle was about, about the big layer ones that ended up becoming very, very successful, like Solana and Avalanche and Near and so on. Um, so scalability still needs to be solved. Uh, the second one is usability. So UX is still really painful. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot of work over the next you know, three to four years to make crypto more and more usable to a mainstream audience. Uh, the third problem is privacy. So all this stuff, we were talking a lot about DeFi. DeFi is completely transparent. I can, if I know your address in DeFi, I can see everything that you're doing. I can see what you're buying, what you're selling, what you hold. Um, this will get solved at some point. Uh, there is no way that the future financial system is one where we can all just casually surveil each other. Uh, that's, you know, there, there will be... You will still want to retain the aspect of um, auditability where I can look into a protocol and I can see how collateralized it is. I can look into a protocol and see you know, the, the, the overall health factors that go into understanding the robustness of a protocol, but I don't need to know who owns what. I don't need to know that this is your position versus someone else's position. And so I think that will get solved at some point. And then, and then of course, there's the last mile problem. And I, I mentioned that to you earlier, which is that, look, you know, if you're in the third world and you want to use DeFi, um, it's actually hard to convert your local currency into the kinds of things you would need to get on chain. In principle, at some point, you will need nothing more than a mobile phone, right? Technically, any mobile phone today can go and interact with anything in DeFi. It can buy you stable coins. It can borrow and lend on Compound. It can trade on Uniswap. Uh, but the problem is converting your local currency into crypto getting yourself onboarded into Web3. Um, and, that, and that takes time. That's hard. Uh, it's, it's also, in, in some sense, it's not super scalable in the sense that it has to get solved in many different places at many different times in order for you to have these robust uh, onboarding mechanisms into Web3. So when you solve a big problem, you win a big prize. That's generally how it works. Almost everything that's been really successful in crypto became really successful because they solved a big problem. And the thing about big problems is that they're big, they're hard, they take a long time. But the spoils, if you can uh, actually solve the problem, are massive. And so as, a, as, a, as an investor and as a venture capitalist, that's what I look for. I look for people who are trying to solve these big, juicy, hairy problems. Um, they tend not to be as sexy as the stuff that moves fast and the stuff that, you know, there's a token next month and you can launch and yield farming and blah, blah, blah. But um, it's where long-term the most value gets created. Yeah, that's always the case, right? It's the boring stuff, the stuff that nobody thinks about when it becomes kind of invisible and becomes a verb. That's what you're actually trying to go for. Um, and I think this is also interesting because when you look at how the blockchain space is actually evolving, there's almost two schools of thought. Uh, on one side, you've got, you know, ETH maxis. And what I do like about Ethereum is their whole internet of blockchains or blockchains connected to other blockchains. Um, at the same time, when I look at Dragonfly and, you know, you guys have got a lot of your companies listed in which you actually made investments. What I do find interesting over there is you're also looking at, you know, stuff that's going on in Avalanche, for example. And if you look at Ethereum and uh, Avalanche, the big difference that you find over there is a lot of these new alt one blockchains which have come out, which are like, you know, Solana and everything else, they've not taken that into consideration that you need to build a layer two. And the layer twos, I think, are really good because of the fact that it helps you kind of decentralize uh, and at the same time ensure a lot of the economic and tech security that comes in. So where are you guys looking at it? Because when I look that you're interested in EVM-compatible kind of blockchains and at the same time you're looking at stuff like Avalanche, is there a reason why you're doing this? Is just diversification of risk? Or do you actually find that there's tangible ecosystems that can be built on each one? So the way that we see it, I mean, one, so Avalanche is one of the largest EVM compatible blockchains today. Um, so we're, we're broadly very bullish on the EVM as being the substrate on which I think a lot of blockchains will scale. But I also think that there's uh, room for other 
blockchains that that emphasize performance and scalability over over the you know compatibility that is you know primarily the the uh, the thing that EVM gives you. So with Avalanche in particular, and I just say just broadly speaking, um, I think the world is already multi-chain. It's not a question of whether multi-chain is going to happen. The multi-chain is just a description of the world that we live in. So there will not be one chain to rule them all. And a large part of the reason why you can't just have one chain to rule them all is the same reason why we don't say that uh, there's one city to rule them all inside of a country. Blockchains are, are, are very similar to cities in a lot of ways in that um, although blockchains are networks and they do have network effects, they are geographically constrained the way that cities are, meaning that a blockchain can't get too big. It can't get too big because if it gets too big and you try to scale it too much, then it no longer becomes decentralized. It no longer becomes possible for normal people to be able to audit the blockchain and you run the blockchain on a normal piece of consumer hardware, in which case now you have to depend on third parties. You have to depend on someone else to tell you that the blockchain is correct or not. Um, and that goes against the point of blockchains. Blockchains are meant to be uh, verifiable by anybody. So for that to be true, um, you need the blockchain to only be so big, which is much like a city, right? Cities, if they get too big, they break off and they become smaller cities, like sister cities, right? Like you know, Dallas and Fort Worth or something like this, or, or you know, New York City and then Jersey City. And when you see that um, comparison, it becomes very clear in the same way that you know, there's not just one city that matters in the U.S. Now, there is a biggest city. New York City is the biggest city in the U.S. Uh, but then you also have L.A. And New York City and L.A. are both cities that are big and they matter. New York City is quite a bit bigger than L.A. But um, the other thing about them is they're very different. They target different industries. They have very different cultures. They have different governance. They have different, um, obviously, they have different costs. Uh, they have different lifestyles that they encourage. And the same thing is going to be true of L1s, is that L1s will take on different properties. They will have different kinds of governance. They will have different, quote unquote, industries that they will target and nurture in the way that, you know, uh, Avalanche might be more focused on DeFi, Solana might be more focused on NFTs, you know, Poly Polygon might be more focused on gaming, et cetera. Um, and you'll see more differentiation, which creates niches that allows these things to coexist because each of them has their own specialization. That's the way that we see this evolving. No, I agree with that because at the same time, the signals are talking. We do a lot of work with you know clients who work in like the the luxury space or just in fashion in general. And increasingly, we've seen two changes when we have conversations with them. Um, the first one is they're much more educated about the topic today, so you just can't go there and give your you know fifteen minute spiel on what you think about it. And this has led to them also starting to think about public blockchains a lot more than private blockchains, which was super interesting for me. I've always been more biased towards public blockchains in any case. So that was the first one. And then when they start looking at the public blockchains, especially in their sector, they're all kind of like mentioning flow all the time. They know about the other blockchains as well, but you, for whatever reason, they've all gravitated towards that. And this was interesting for us because when we started kind of running a thought experiment and we're talking to different clients, whether they're there in finance, or they're in supply chain or whatever else, everyone's already come to this weird consensus on which blockchain they want to play with, even though most of the times they don't talk to each other, or they might bump into each other in some conference or something. But it's kind of like something which they're, they're, they're self-educating themselves and you know they're being autodidactic about it. And um, I think that's that's that makes a lot more sense to me. It also kind of goes back to the fundamental rules of how, uh, not the rules, but at least the theories in which you had two schools of economic thought, the Keynesian, and then, of course, you had the Hayekian. And the Hayekian school of thought was always based on the fact that you could have multiple currencies which are tailored to a certain function, but which will have this interoperability effect and the fungibility effect would allow an economy to actually function. And that was all based on having better efficiency. So I do kind of understand that and agree with the fact that long-term, this is definitely going to become much more efficient as a system. The question is how long. And do you have a number for that? Do you think we're going to crawl out of this crypto blizzard or winter, whatever's going on? <laughs> I would guess that um, it'll probably be a couple of years until we crawl out of this. I mean, it's, I mean, again, crypto is largely tied to macro uh, in, in a present moment like this. So you, you have to, I mean, the, it's, it's basically asking the question, when do you think the economy is going to look better? And I would say probably a year and a half to two years is, is going to be my median estimate of when things start to look, not just that the worst is over, but that things start to look rosy again. As we're coming towards the end of this podcast, I want to play a little game with you. 
So the yeah. game's very simple, all right? Okay. I'm going to ask one one word. I'm just going to mention one word. And you got to give your thought on it, either with another one-word answer or maybe you can go up to five words. You got to keep like two. Okay. Five. All right? Okay. Word association. There That's we right. go. So here's the first one. Algorithmic stable coins. Uh, not long for this world. Terra 2.0. Good try. The merge for Ethereum. Uh, coming, but may tarry. Cosmos. Application-specific blockchains will exist, but be small. Web 3.0. Web 5.0, apparently. <laughs> Perfect. That was actually my next question. <laughs> Future of DeFi. Future of DeFi, um, slow and steady. This interview. This, this interview? interview. Um, Fun time. All right. Enjoy. It. Right. So that was it, man. That was a little podcast on trying to get an understanding of what's going on. There's so much more to unpack in this. I mean, I could literally sit here and talk about each and everything that we mentioned, you know, in much more detail. But I think what's going to happen is I wanted to keep the format of this a bit short because I just think that we need to kind of take a step back and look at each and every one of these things as an unfolding and as a lesson to be learned. There's so much going on right now that we really need to kind of massage the nuances and see how these interconnections are happening because that gives us some kind of a map and a compass as to how DeFi's next version needs to look. So um, thank you so much for that, uh, Haseeb. That was really good, man. And for those of you who are listening to the podcast, we are going to be putting the show notes or at least like a links to a lot of what Haseeb is doing. You need to check out his chopping block presence. He, he really uh, chops it up uh, when he's on there and gives a lot of insight and he gets a lot of interesting people. He's got a very active Medium page going on as well uh, in which he talks about everything that you know he's thinking about right now and it's always with a lot of detail and data. So in conclusion, Haseeb, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Um, would you like to tell people where they can actually find you? Easiest place to find me is on Twitter. Just Google my name or something that sounds like my name and you'll find me. Um, thanks so much for having me. This was, this was a lot of fun, man. Thank you at home for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Future Sight, show from Capture My Invent. We'll see you soon.